All right, Practice of Medicine 4 team, listen, there are several matters that distinguish, obviously, pediatric practice and PD ethics from adult care and adult ethics. This involves issues of consent, confidentiality, which is huge, genetic testing, and of course, the all too terribly sad end of life issues, especially when it affects a child. But it's deeper than that because there's pregnancy issues, birth control issues, and emergencies all have to do with how we take care of pediatric and adolescent care patients correctly. And of course, as always, this is Practice of Medicine 4. I'm Dr. Chapa, and I'm with... Rob Carpenter. So we're trying to keep you out of danger when you make these decisions, especially when caring in this patient population. We have to start this discussion with the first thing we always learn in our ethics class, consent. But making consent decisions with children is different because they're minors. So Dr. Carpenter, talk to us about it. You know, decision-making for children is a unique and challenging process. Mm. And regardless of what area of medicine you go into, this is something you're going to be dealing with either with your children, your patients, or the people that ask you for assistance. Adults generally make their own medical decisions through the process of what we call informed consent that you've already learned about. However, most children have not reached the developmental stage at which they can ethically or legally give informed consent, as you've already heard. To further complicate matters, many parties may be involved in the decision-making process. This is going to include the patient, parents, family members, the healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, social workers, clergy, and unfortunately, all too often, our friends in the court. Yeah. Parents have both a legal and a moral obligation here, and two terms must be clarified, and you as a provider need to appreciate these terms to make sure that the right thing is being done for the child. Listen to these. These are important. The first is a duty, a duty which is to provide a minor child with medical and dental care that is appropriate. Yeah. The second is a right to consent which allows parents to give permission for the minor's medical and dental care, and it's an obligation that they have, a responsibility that is their own. But for children, informed consent is not an island. Two interrelated concepts are gonna come into play here that we're gonna talk about beyond those responsibilities of the parent. Beneficence and informed permission. We need to define these terms and find out just what these concepts are and how they affect pediatric ethics. So, Dr. Chapa, what can you tell us about the all-important aspect and concept of beneficence? And that's good. So, remember, we and parents have this duty to treat. Parents have a right of consent. But there's this issue, as we just talked about, with beneficence and informed permission. Beneficence, of course, is the foundation of decision-making for all kids. This principle encourages identification of the child's best interest through, quote, shared decision-making. That's a hot term in a lot of professional societies. Shared decision-making. And that can involve the clinician, the patient, and the parents. Now, each member of this triad brings information that helps identify what the best interest for the child actually is. The clinician provides a thorough understanding of the available medical evidence. Guys, that's your job. That's our job. And we do that by giving an objective Q&A and discussion of the facts. Then the parents bring their intimate familiarity with the child and the family. 
So that's the responsibility of the caregiver, the responsibility of the parent. But Dr. Carpenter, what about this this primary caregiver of the child, of the children? Where, where do they come in again? Well, again, as the child's primary caregivers, parents give informed consent, and here's the term, by proxy. Mm. Otherwise known as, quote, informed permission, end quote. And that's a really important concept. Because they are usually best able to determine what the child's best interest is from their longstanding knowledge from birth, literally, they know what the child would want and hopefully the conversations and values that not only the family have, but that the child holds. Physicians have the responsibility to ensure that the parental motivations are based on the child's needs rather than the parent's wishes. All of the tenets of informed consent apply to informed permission. However, the adult parents are the ones who ultimately make the decision instead of the child patient. So does this mean children or pediatric patients have no say in their medical matters? Well, not at all. Right. In fact, Although children may be legally unable to give informed consent, they still hold this very important authority. And that authority is what we call assent. Mm. Assent empowers them to the extent of their developmental abilities. Obviously, a two-year-old versus a four-year-old versus a 13-year-old and beyond. So the ideal decision-making scenario is a shared process where the physician provides information and recommendations based on science and their expertise. The parents give informed permission based on their knowledge of the child and their family values. And the patient gives assent to interventions that are in his or her best interest to the best of their ability. That's good. So Dr. Chapa, though, here's the real issue. In the end, we can have all of that in decision-making but what about confidentiality? Because now it's no longer a provider and a healthcare worker and a patient. Right. You now have a parent or parents that are brought into the decision-making process. And remember, we're always trying and we need to protect confidentiality. That's HIPAA. Remember, that's its own topic in practice of medicine for. So confidentiality is huge. But remember, the confidentiality needs of a toddler is much different than the confidentiality needs of an adolescent, right? Their needs are totally different. And that's why providing care to an adolescent can be very tricky. And we're going to explain that. We're going to keep you out of trouble here because confidentiality is different based on age. The provision of confidentiality and the ability of adolescents to consent for certain health care issues, it's the cornerstone for optimal adolescent health care. I mean, my goodness, if adolescents knew or thought that we were going to whistleblow everything they come in for, they'd never get care. So confidentiality is respected even as minors. According to this tenant, information about the adolescent's health care cannot be disclosed, sorry parents, without his or her permission. That's actually in medical ethics. Assurance of confidentiality is important to protect the adolescent's health and to safeguard overall public health. The major cause of morbidity and mortality in adolescents are due to risky behaviors like sexual activity, alcohol, substance abuse, as well as unmet mental health needs. So they have to have a certain amount of confidentiality to get these things discussed. 
All right, Dr. Carpenter, what else do we know about this? Well, the great news is, in the end, this isn't something that's a new concept. This has been studied for quite a long period of time. And throughout our careers, we have seen changes in the appreciation of how we can have this process with our adolescent patients. During the last three decades, research has supported the the importance of the provision of confidential health care and illustrated that if not provided, adolescents and young adults will not seek out prescriptions contraceptives, receive screening and or treatment therapies for STDs, and disclose substance abuse to the providers at their medical visits. These are things that are essential to keep them safe and to keep those they're around safe. Moreover, they will withhold information from their healthcare provider and Dr. Chapa, they won't come back yeah. for follow-up to make sure that what you've done right. to help them actually worked. Sure. During the adolescent years, adolescents transition from children to adults. And hey, Good. I'm telling you, as the, as the father of a 13-year-old, it's not easy as a parent. Yeah. Clinicians need to support this adolescent's individualization and developing autonomy Good. in order to develop a healthy relationship with them and their health care providers for the rest of their life. By ensuring confidentiality for certain healthcare concerns, healthcare providers are supporting this crucial milestone of adolescent development by fostering safe and informed decision-making skills. This approach also reflects the physician's ethical obligation to ensure the patient's well-being around all aspects of their life. Allowing for confidential and candid discussions with adolescents is also important as they may have questions regarding sexual behaviors, sexual orientation, safe safe sex practices, or even the push to engage in other relatively risky behaviors like alcohol use. Right. Dr. Chapa. Now, here's the issue here. There is not just this opinion that that we have to to bring this you know, give patients, give adolescents the confidentiality. We have the backing, guys, of professional societies to keep you safe. So when a parent asks, well, why do I have to step out? We're going to get into that in a minute. The short answer is we're developing their autonomy, and the clinical guidance says so. National medical organizations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine, the American Academy of Family Practice, and my area, the American College of OBGYN, all have supported the need to provide this confidential care for adolescents. So don't let somebody tell you, oh, they're adolescents, they don't have confidentiality. That's not true. Not only do they call for this kind of care, but they also advocate for education of adolescents and their parents, as Dr. Carpenter said, to develop this kind of autonomy as they become adults. It's also super important, as we've already discussed, that they get this confidentiality for STI information, education, and of course, preventative measures. But adolescent patients should be informed that state laws do mandate reporting, Dr. Carpenter, of physical or sexual abuse if they're a minor and that's brought out in that discussion. You got to report that. Confidentiality has to be breached. It's part of just keeping them safe. Or if they make the statement that they are thinking about self-harm or harm of others, confidentiality may not be maintained. So, Dr. Carpenter, now that we've said that, how do we convince parents then to step out of the room so we can have confidential time with their adolescent child? That can be incredibly difficult. Yeah. As healthcare professionals, it is essential to educate families, both parents, 
guardians, and adolescents on the reasons for clinicians requesting to spend a part of their visit with the adolescent alone and starting to do this annually early in adolescence as a part of best practice. In essence, what we're really doing is we're training the parents and the patient to have this as an expectation so that it's not a one-off. And when it is truly a necessary intervention, we actually have them used to the idea, the concept of it. Adolescents are, free, are frequently have no idea where they could obtain confidential services, especially substance abuse or mental health services. So we need to be able to provide them for that. Not all minors are the same. And under the law, an adolescent younger than 18 years is generally considered a minor. Sure. However, minors younger than 18 years may have acquired legal status under one of the following provisions. You ready for this? Here we go, Dr. Chapa. They are a mature minor. Okay. An emancipated minor. Number two. An incarcerated minor. Three. Or a minor in foster care. Okay. If a minor status has been designated as any of these four points, they may be afforded some of the same legal rights as an adult. Mm. And this affects their right to obtain confidential health care specifically. We can cover these items more in depth in our web sessions yeah. to save time here. But we do need to specifically address pregnant teen care. And Dr. Shapa, as a Man. general surgeon, I'm going to hand that right to you. Listen, guys, this is a big deal because confidentiality and care for adolescents is totally different between a 15-year-old adolescent girl versus a 15-year-old pregnant adolescent girl. So watch this, because this is kind of tricky, but we're going to make it plain. So pregnant teens can consent to their own health care in most states, as well as for their children. Now, whether they do or not is something else, but they have that legal right to do that. All right, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But questions do come up around the rights of teen fathers. What about them? Well, generally, if a teen is listed as the father of a child on a birth certificate, then he would have the same parental rights as the teen mother. However, it's quite variable as to whether the parenting teen can consent for her own health care or not, unless it fits into one of the categories that we've already talked about. And we're going to get into when this pregnant teen or this, this parent, this teen who's a parent, whether they can consent for them or not, because it's, it's, it's really very clear. We're going to mention that here in a minute. But it's beyond just pregnancy where minors in Texas can consent to their own care. So listen to this, guys. According to Texas law via the Texas Family Code, Texas law allows minors to consent to treatment by any licensed physician or dentist when the minor is, Dr. Carpenter? One, on active duty with armed services. Hey, if you can defend our country, you can make your own decisions. Absolutely. Two, 16 years or older and resides separate and apart from parents managing conservator or guardian with or without the consent of that guardian mm. and is managing his or her own financial affairs, regardless of the source of income. Good. That's a whole nother discussion. Next, unmarried and pregnant and consents to treatment related to pregnancy other than abortion. Okay. So if they're pregnant, even though they're unmarried, they can consent to their own pregnancy related care. Other than abortion. Correct. Next, unmarried and the parent of a child and has actual custody of that child and consents for the child. All right. Hold on a minute. Hold on. Y'all got to get that. Y'all get that. So if a, if there's a teen parent 
who makes decisions for the child and has custody of that child, that 15-year-old mother can make her own health care decisions. If she also uh-huh. is taking not only custody of the child, but making medical decisions for that child. Right, right. That's right. complicated. Well, I'll just tell you right there. That makes my surgical head swim. <laughs> Next, if that adolescent is consenting to diagnosis or treatment of an infectious, contagious, or communicable disease, including sexually transmitted infections, that must be reported to the Texas Department of State Health Services, also commonly known as DISHES. Well, if that's the case, then we can help them. Without consent. Exactly. Without the parental aspect. Correct. Next. Consenting to examination or treatment for chemical addiction, dependency, or any other condition directly related to substance use or abuse. And finally, consenting for counseling or suicide prevention, chemical addiction, or dependency, or for sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, because in that instance, the safety of the child is at stake. Absolutely. Wow, so so that's good stuff. It's incredibly complex, and this is one of the reasons why you need to have a good relationship with your risk management office. Yeah as well as your ethics committee, regardless of where you are along in lines of your training. Dr. Chapa, what can you tell us about family planning and contraceptives, especially in the state of Texas? All right, so listen to this, guys. Remember, I don't know what happens in New York, New Jersey. It doesn't matter for us because we are Texas A&M. So in Texas, here's our rules, all right? It's a little different for, for birth control stuff. So listen, parental consent is not required for minors to receive education information about any family plan. They can walk in to my office as a 15-year-old and go, tell me about Depo Provera. No problem. Without any need for parental consent about that. However, consent issues for birth control go deeper than that. While minors do not need parental consent to purchase non-prescription contraception, like condoms, Texas law requires minors to get a parent's permission to receive prescription contraception. In other words, birth control pills, Depo-Provera, uh, Nexplan, anything that requires a prescription, the parent has to give permission. And Dr. Carpenter, it's method-specific. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now, hold oh, on there. Here we go. Wait, Dr. Chapa, you're telling me that if I'm a 14-year-old girl yeah. and I come into your office and I get you to talk to my parents and collectively we decide that okay. I can have birth control pills, but if I come back to you and say that I want an IUD? Yep, can't do it. What? So in Texas law... Parental consent for prescription contraceptives are, quote, method specific. So whenever the method is changed to another prescription method, the parent must sign that method specific consent. But of course, there are exceptions to everything and there are exceptions to parental consent requirements. Here it goes. Under federal law, minors can give their own consent and receive confidential family planning services, even prescription stuff on request, if their funding source is federal, in other words, Medicaid or Title X, called the Family Planning Program. This constitutional right of privacy has been found to cover a minor's access to contraception. So everybody get that? So if they have Medicaid, for example, because that's federal, they can come in and I can give them depo in a heartbeat without parental consent. In addition, minors may consent for prescription contraceptives if they are legally emancipated or at least 16 years of of age and living on their own like we've already discussed. 
But of course, this does not include abortion, which we're not going to get into at this time. Minors can also consent to their own prenatal care without parental consent. And Dr. Carpenter, as a surgeon, as we wrap this up, tell us about pediatric or adolescent care in an emergency. Well, the fact of the matter is, what Texas law states is that appropriate medical care for children and teenagers with an urgent or emergent condition should never be withheld or delayed because consent cannot be obtained. Good. Now, that's essential because I can tell you in my career, when I was covering pediatric surgery or covering the trauma unit, I saw teenagers who had been in medical, who'd been in car accidents or motorcycle wrecks whose operative care was delayed because someone got in our way and demanded that we get written or verbal consent from their guardian. And pediatrics, the American Academy of Pediatrics protects them, right? Tell Absolutely. You know, the fact of the matter is that the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Pediatric Emergency Medicine, initially in 2003 and then further defined in 2007, mm-hmm. clearly states that in the case of an emergency, either the parent may consent to, I'm sorry, either parent can consent to emergency medical treatment if they're accessible and available. That's the catch. In the case of emergency treatment to preserve life and limb, a provider does not need consent of a parent or conservator. Say that one again. You need to take care of the child. You need to take care of the patient if it is a life or death circumstance or if you're looking at the loss of an eye, an extremity, or the like. Sure. As an emergency progresses, healthcare personnel should at least attempt to contact a parent or conservator more directly. You got to make an effort. Yeah, but or you can you can actually defer that to someone else while you once again take care of the child. Finally, providers should seek consent or assent for emergency care from a teen patient as appropriate for the teen's development, age, and understanding. But once again, all too often, these teenage children or these patients, in the end, they've suffered the same kind of a, an injury that an adult has, and they may not have the capacity to give you that informed yeah, consent. Yeah, it's a traumatic experience. So what sure. you have to do is, again, take care of the patient in that emergency Good. circumstance. So Dr. Chapa, bring us home. Yep. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of what to do? about breaches in confidentiality. Well, if you are an adolescent or you have an adolescent patient, they have to be made aware that while confidentiality is definitely honored and respected, there could be some breaches that are outside of anybody's control. And that mainly has to do with billing. So if an adolescent chooses to obtain confidential services, he or she needs to be aware of the possible breaches of confidentiality at the time of billing and payment by their health insurer if they're on their parents' insurance. Y'all know this, you may have heard of this, the EOB. That's the Explanation of Benefits. That's a letter that's mailed to the primary insurance policyholder. Uh Uh-oh. And that's generally the parents. Now, things aren't spelled out in those EOBs. They're all coded. They're either CPT codes or ICD-10 codes. But the parent has a right, if they're paying for it, to call and ask what those codes are. So you have to be very careful with that. Now, the intention of the EOB letter is not to whistleblow on some adolescent getting care. Not at all. It's actually to prevent billing fraud and provide patients with detailed information about what they're paying for. So it's a good idea, but in an adolescent case, 
could represent a breach in confidentiality. So remember, disclose that to these adolescents. And there's ways around that that we can talk about that when we meet on Zoom. So Dr. Carpenter, take it at home. Well, I want to go back real quick, Dr. Chapa, because here's something I didn't think about until right now. With the institution of the Affordable Care Act, many young adults are also on their parents' insurance. And I've actually had patients who came in to receive care, never let their parents know that they had X, Y, or Z performed. Sure. And that 23 or 24-year-old is really upset by the fact that- You've now given information through that EOB back to their parents. So please understand that what we're talking about here about adolescence translates into the care of the young adult. That's yes, from there. yes. And, and there's ways, guys. We I, I think this is a great topic for, for the online thing because there's ways. Look, you can write anything that you want to in a note, and you can hide note. You can hide parts in a medical record, especially with the EMR. You can put confident. There's a confidential thing you can click, and that will not pop up when they print and ask for records. And it's up to you whether you want to actually bill for that or not. And I got to tell you, I've got plenty of plenty of, of, of adolescents. I don't necessarily bill for that as a code. I just do the service trying to shield them. So there's things that we can do to because I just want to get patients taken care of. But that's a discussion for next time. Dr. Carpenter? You know, Dr. Chapa, this is a really exciting topic, and I find it so incredibly important for each and every one of you to really take this to heart. Whether you become a pediatrician, a gynecologist, a pediatric surgeon, or whatever area of medicine, this is going to be something that's essential to you. So thank you for your time today. And Dr. Chapa, until next time. time. See you next time on Practice of Medicine. Bye, y'all. 